For our 52nd night rule, I was extremely honored and pleased and delighted and very much entertained to be joined by Professor Adnan Hussein of Queen's University. Uh, we discussed, and he was good enough to read from The Tale of Princess Fatima, Warrior Woman, the Arab epic of Dat al-Ima, translated by Melanie Majidow. Um, a pretty fun discussion. Uh, I had a really fantastic time, and we'll probably be continuing this uh, in some kind of episodic form very soon. So um, besides that, I'll just say today's intro is from Ono Yuji from the Lupin Three original soundtrack. The name of that song is Silhouette, and the outro is from Sakamoto Ryuch. The name of that song is Stepping Into Asia. So without any further ado, and in the interest of time, welcome to Night Roll. about this epic can be episodic because that in fact is actually how it was received by mm. uh, its audience it mm. was not something that somebody just sat down and read it was always orally performed mm -hmm. uh, and there's a whole genre of these very long uh, epic stories that were orally told and they were the basically the entertainment of the you know, pre-modern period, they didn't have uh, like millennia shows yeah. and series, but they had the epic stories and they would be told maybe an hour, an hour and a half or two hours uh, each evening for a period of time. And in fact, actually, I heard um, uh, not this tale, but one of the other very famous Sirat Antar um, being performed by a kind of contemporary Rawi, that is a storyteller, oral storyteller, uh, who used to do this once a week, I think it was like Wednesday or Tuesday evenings after the sunset prayer behind the Umayyad mosque in uh, the old city of Damascus. So when I was mm -hmm. studying Arabic, you know, I would go sometimes and, and listen to this Rawi and it was really engrossing because it was um, not just like listening to something being recited, but he was really an it was oral a performance. performer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was electrifying. I'm sure it was a fantastic freaking time. Yeah, for centuries. I mean, you know, people like 40 people would be there together listening to the story. Mm. There's a lot of engagement and audience interaction, and of course, the oral storyteller is capable of adjusting adding episodes, uh, making decisions about whether to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, condense this part because it seems like the audience is sort of lagging on it and get to the next important bit of action or something. So there, each performance will be different. We think of the text of this story as having been written down and obviously it survives in a written form from the medieval uh, era but it was orally told before then, and it subsequently was always orally told and performed after that. So we could go and see people performing this now, really, probably. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's a dying art. have to go art. a little while, it might go yeah. a little ways, yeah. Yeah, it's a dying art, but yeah. um, there are still people who, who uh, maintain this tradition to some extent. And um, 
it's just a, a great way to to uh, enjoy this the story. So you know the reason why though it wasn't translated before mm. uh, in a good modern English translation is because it is absolutely voluminous. I mean this is like mm. seven volumes in print edition in Arabic, thousands of pages. These are huge epics. Yeah, and um, you know. It's, it takes a lot of work to kind of figure out um, how to make a good coherent story, what episodes to leave out and um, mm -hmm. to translate it. And, you know, also let's admit and, you know, uh, that uh, this is also popular, maybe popular literature. It's in a slightly different register mm. and it didn't have quite the same, I sort of, I guess, appeal for the, um, Western audience, the target languages. Um, right. So people who were really interested in this learned the Arabic. They're Arabic scholars, and they would read this literature. And of course, Arabs, you know, know it and can and can read it. There wasn't perhaps the same kind of audience for this really long, meandering uh, kind of heroic epic story that um, would function. Uh, somewhat differently than the urban audience for, say, the Thousand and One Nights, Alf Leila Walayla, right, which is right. uh, roughly contemporary, you know, another medieval form of popular uh, Arabic literature. Yeah, but that's what's interesting have... to me, though, because that's been in translation for a long time. But let me yeah, just quickly intro. Obviously, this is Night Rule. Obviously, I'm Isaac. I'm joined by Professor Adnan Hussain of Queen's University. We're talking about, in particular, um, the new translation, uh, Tale of Princess Fatima, Warrior Woman, the Arab epic of Dat Al-Hima. How is that pronunciation? Can you yeah, correct that me? Yeah, Dat Al-Hima, yeah. Dat Al-Hima. So um, it's interesting that something contemporaneous to that or contemporary, like uh, at the same time as that, would just now be, I mean, because of course I'm, I'm, some, I'm, I'm a big old classical history nerd. So I know that Plato and Aristotle and all these things were translated and then translated back into European languages by Arab scholars, right? Mm -hmm. um, or via, so like in my mind, it's like, well, if that was happening, you know, a thousand years ago, why hasn't this, if it's a very famous work, but you've, you've laid it out pretty well. If it's like 10,000 yeah. pages, I mean, obviously, the kind of high culture, low culture question comes into play a little bit and the biases there. Definitely. Um, but I mean, I think it's within six months as my coworker joked when I was telling them about this, they're like, I mean, there's gonna be a Disney movie coming out with this. Oh, well this, there should be a series. I mean, this would be ideal for a nice little Netflix series, you know? Yeah. They seem to love these uh, kind of medieval stories now. You know, there's a bunch of good series that pick up on medieval contexts and you know medieval or you know renaissance era sorts, mm -hmm. of, sorts of things period piece dramas yeah. yeah and this would make an absolutely fantastic one or a great you know film but i think it would be better as a series mm -hmm. myself and you know i'm sure you you'll have to get on uh melody magadow the translator of oh for sure and translator of I'm, this. I'm gonna tweet I'm sure live tweet right now She'll be optioning this off, I'm sure, because this is just so fabulous. The material is great. Firstly, it's about a warrior woman. This is the only one of these long epic stories that is about a, a heroic female warrior. That is already very exciting and interesting to undermine some of the stereotypes people might have in a very simplistic way about Arab and Muslim societies and cultures. So the idea that one of the great epics is actually about this fighting woman who actually, if you when you read the story and the dialogue is very capable and willing to defend, you know, her gender you know, position you know, that she just mm. has no interest whatsoever in succumbing to the norms and, and, and kind of conventions of, you know, the gendered uh, division of roles. She just does not want to uh, adhere to them. You know, obviously the role of gender is a very complicated one in this society. It is clearly a patriarchal society. It's a patriarchal society as it's painted in the story, but we still have this, a female figure who's young, intelligent, capable, who is at the center of global geopolitical kinds of events in the Muslim leading Empire. armies, yeah, leading yeah. armies. This and this is during the period of uh, like Eastern Roman history and Byzantine. Because I've actually been listening to a podcast all about 
uh, Byzantine history. So this would yeah. be right in that area. We're talking like 600, 700, 800, 900 times, like AD, right? Yeah, this is in basically the set in the eighth century. Yeah. Uh, and it is during this period where the, uh, you know, the Umayyad and then later Abbasid Empire uh, has a frontier zone that is basically between northern Syria and Iraq and Asia Minor or uh, Anatolia, the Anatolian Peninsula, mm. what is modern day Turkey. That and also controlled Egypt, modern day Egypt as well, right? Well, the Muslims, the Arab Muslim uh, Not the Sayyid, the... conquered it in, right. the, in the 7th century, conquered yeah. it yeah. fairly early on. This is set when um, kind of that um, period of the early expansion of Muslim uh, political rule through their conquests in the Middle East had slowed. And there is a kind of stable border zone and border region between the Byzantine or East Roman Empire and the Arab Muslim Umayyad Empire. Umayyad, there right. are like forays and there are, you know, uh, some attacks and so on, but that's kind of the border zone. And mm -hmm. so there is this border zone and this is set actually in a very interesting historical moment where the Umayyad, the first Arab dynasty mm -hmm. that has been Arab kingdom with its capital in Damascus, has undergone a revolution and a new dynasty, what will be known as the Abbasid dynasty. Has Is this the Persian Roman. influence? Well, Persian influence in some uh, it, sense it, it, comes in because... Because I know that happens around the same time because obviously like Persia has been conquered by this point. There's been kind yeah. of a cultural interchange between Islamic culture and, and drawing upon um, the, the kind of Persian history and culture and whatnot. And there's kind of like a little bit of a blended, um, like uh, almost like there's basically like a Persian elite that emerges within the Islamic world obviously as Muslims themselves, but like somewhat, somewhat bringing their own unique perspective and, and drawing on their own history as well, right? That's right, because the Sasanian Empire collapses. So the Persian mm -hmm. Empire that had its capital in Ctesiphon in the sort of Tigris, Euphrates River region uh, has collapsed, whereas the Byzantine Empire with its uh, capital in Constantinople survives, but just in reduced kind of territorial extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what happens to the Persian elite is that, you know, many of them get absorbed in various ways into the new uh, dynasties, but particularly the Abbasid dynasty that, you know, has this revolution around 750 and they relocate the capital. Originally, the armies that were successful come from Khorasan, which is, in, you know, a region in, in Persia. And they displace the Umayyads and move the capital to a new capital that they create called Baghdad or the round city. Medina exactly. Salam. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Which was so uh, like planned very meticulously. Like I forgot that Baghdad, that Baghdad was was planned really meticulously and was really like a special kind of capital created purpose. Yeah. yeah, that's right. To to kind of aggrandize the new dynasty and its world uh, empire. Let's remember and understand that the Abbasid dynasty was the largest contiguous land world empire, you know, uh, before uh, the Mongol conquest and the Mongol world empire. So it's vast territory that's stretching from basically Morocco and southern Spain yep. uh, all the way to Central Asia, the borders of contemporary, you know, Xinjiang province and northern India, basically, right? Yeah. So they moved the capital to Baghdad. They found this new new city. And so it's often thought that it uh, is almost in some ways a kind of continuator because it's very close to the old Sasanian capital. So mm. that's often the, the thought. And also some of the viziral families, that is those who exactly. administer and govern the empire, they're not the overall rulers, but they're the people who actually run the bureaucracy, run the state. Yeah, and skilled administrators, basically. Yeah. That's right. And those families just went from the Sasanian administration into, you know, the Abbasid uh, administration. Yeah, of course. So there's a lot of continuity. That's true. Well, of course, many things have changed. But so this is a very big moment of change. And mm. this story is actually set during that period. And according to the epic, uh, the Princess Fatima plays some key role, right, in um, recognizing that the Abbasids is the legitimate dynasty and that they're replacing the Umayyads and that her tribe should really, uh, you know, prof profess fealty and recognize the Abbasid, um, you know, uh, the Abbasid rule. And they, in fact, end up playing 
a role in defending, you know, Muslim territory and in fact even expanding it um, in conflict with the Byzantines on behalf of the Abbasids, right? So mm. what starts off in, in, as a family story, a family, a story of, of uh, you know, Arab tribes people mm. and these clans and uh, competitions among the, you know, Bedouin uh, uh, tribes people. Uh, in the first few episodes and that detailed this lineage um, ends up becoming a wide ranging geopolitical story of the origins of the city of Malatya and why various Arab uh, uh, peoples ended up in the area of southern Anatolia, northern kind of Syria. So this is sort of a story that um, you know, maybe somewhat fantastical and fictitious, but it's an origin story to explain, well, who are the Arabs of that region and how do they get there and to set them in the context of this kind of grand contact, contest between the Abbasid world empire and the Byzantine uh, empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a shockingly like underrepresented or underexplored. I mean, even for someone, someone me personally, who's particularly interested in history, I feel as though this period is underexplored partially because I feel as though people feel the, the way that religion is, is so much on, uh, was worn on the sleeve is kind of like uh, it turns people off somehow and they're just like well the Byzantines were these super religious fanatics but they would also you know kill their own children and throw people out of towers and it's it's just seems like a very weird and scary time (laughs) but even I mean I mean really it is it is a there is a continuity with the classical culture I think and I feel as though we've people have bought into and I'm kind of veering into like European history here a little bit but with the Byzantine Empire um the whole idea that like Rome fell and that there was just this clear break between Byzantine history and Roman history, belying the fact that all these people called themselves Romans up until the bitter end. Um, right. And then, right. I mean, in terms of people in the West, like myself, understanding Islamic history, let's just say we have we still have a ways to go. So well, hopefully, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, I mean, that that's an issue. And I think it's interesting that you put it in those terms, because I was just recently lecturing as a guest in a music class, a first year music class at Queens. They wanted to do something on cross-cultural relations, you know, mm. in the history of music and music theory. And so we were talking about medieval Spain and, you know, as a place that was a crossroads for the transmission of knowledge. And of course it was famous really for the translation movement that you already alluded to, where Mm -hmm. Greek texts were translated into Latin, except that very often the story is told as either they ignore the fact that, you know, the medium in which uh, they were translated was from Arabic into Latin, um, but also it makes it seem as if the story is just that the Islamic world sort of preserved and kept this Western knowledge for a while. Absolutely. So that that's absolutely be, the story, yeah. Yeah, reabsorbed by Europe and rediscovered, recover its own heritage and legacy, yeah. which ignores the fact that, in fact, actually, what those people who are translating, just like in today's modern it, science, which is a global and international project, yeah. is you want the latest stuff. You want the yeah, highest, yeah. you know, best data, the best experiments, the latest thought. And so as a result, the Latin uh, translators, that those who translated it into Latin for uh, medieval European consumption, uh, were very interested in the Arabic commentaries and critiques Absolutely. and extensions yeah. of what was essentially a living tradition of scientific and philosophical and mathematical knowledge and medical knowledge. So they were just as interested in the Arabs as they were the Greeks because that was the latest stuff, you know. And in fact, actually, it wasn't just a matter of recovering the Greeks, but you know, there were, you know, extensions of it there, you know, one of the things the Arabs really contributed in this uh, kind of scientific tradition was a lot of, um, you know, experimental data and close observation. So when you're talking about astronomy, you know, you could understand Ptolemy's calculations and his system, these perfect spheres of planets moving, uh, uh, you know, around the earth, you know, which was, of course, the, you know, the idea of a geocentric uh, solar system, and so on. Uh, One of the things um, that the Arabs contributed was very detailed, close observation and tables that showed that there were a lot of problems and you had to adjust Ptolemy's theory in order to make sense of actual Mm. movement of stars and planets and so on. And there were others that also took 
theoretical kind of uh, critique and said, well, you know, we got to really think that there might be some other scenarios here. Al-Biruni, for example, posits in his critique of the Ptolemaic system in order to make adjustments to actually fit calculations and observations of existing data. You know, one of his uh, several scenarios was, well, you know, if you put the sun at the center of the system, uh, then the calculations make sense, you know? So, I mean, he didn't say, yes, sure. it is a geocentric, but he was like, well, you know, you got to work on this. And as a result, when Europe receives this, uh, you know, information and knowledge, uh, they're actually interested in the Arabs. So it's much more of a dynamic cross-cultural Mediterranean world that we're talking about. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, really just, I want to jump in there really quick because like, that's what people need to, that that's, that's what people need to understand now. I mean, we've had going on 20 plus years of just you know, naked Islamophobia, dehumanization of people in the Arab world, you know, uh, troops occupying countries, people dying needlessly. And the whole time we've been told, you know, it's a, it's a backward area, you know, they're, they're centuries behind, etc. And maybe the people who say that know something a little bit, oh, you know, the, the Arab translations of Plato and Aristotle, whatever, a tiny bit, and that's all they know. If they knew, if it was general knowledge that no, this, it wasn't just those few things you know about, it's, it's, it's a wellspring of activity and knowledge that sprung from an extremely developed, extremely cosmopolitan society. Mm -hmm. And that was part of a, a greater cultural interchange with the wider world around it that historically, you know, the import could never be fully properly estimated. It would give people at least, the, you know, the ignorant from all the years of bad Hollywood movies, et cetera, that have just turned their brains to mush. It would give them some kind of like basis on which to be like, you know what? We definitely don't need to be invading Arab, Arab countries or flying drones over them and bombing wedding parties because these, are, these people are exactly like everyone else and have their own rich cultural history. You know, that's right. I mean, you know, one is the dehumanization that you point out and the, uh, but the other is also the kind of cultural bigotry, you know, that assumes that other people don't have, you know, a sophisticated cultural uh, heritage uh, mm -hmm. that gives them value, that gives their culture like, their a, like a civilizational heritage. It's like multi, yeah. you know, on that, in that holistic way. Mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully we're doing our part here on Night Rule, though. This, this is a goal of ours. I think I think, though. If it's all right, I might ask that we start, maybe you can start off with a reading for the good people. So, you know, we've, sure. we've, we've, we've veered into the greater context. I mean, the only real, the only real way to, to, yeah, to, to get it, to get your feet wet with uh, this, uh, this narrative spoken word performance, I'm not even going to degrade it by calling it theater. This, this kind of performance is like such a rich tradition spanning the entire globe and probably all of human history that like, it's, you know, it probably dwarfs any modern media by like about a billion times in terms of like <laughs> number of revolutions around the sun. Um, so Princess Fatima, warrior woman, this translation focuses just mainly on her story within the greater epic, correct? Yes, uh, it telescopes some things, um, you know, it's seven volumes in the current Arab uh, Arabic print edition, thousands of pages. This is a select translation to try and make a more coherent uh, narrative together. Although I think it is really good for readings because the chapters are short. And so these episodes are separable even within the larger narrative. I think it's actually a very, very well done uh, editing job as well as uh, uh, translation. And I've really been enjoying uh, reading it and reading it out loud. Um, I'm wondering what would be the best um, section to read, uh, you know, either the very beginning of the epic or um, looking at some, where we actually come to, because it starts with family history, the family history and background uh, before we come to Fatima. Mm -hmm. We could perhaps start with the, the beginning of Fatima's story. I think, I think that's a good spot, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this... Um, uh, chapter in the translated uh, edition and version is called Fatima Uprooted. And this is the beginning of her story. Um, so as just a little immediate background, um, you know, there are some previous characters. Um, she is uh, born uh, um, and they introduce her basically before Sahsa's granddaughter became that Alhimma, which was her, you know, kind of nom de guerre, mm. uh, the famed warrior woman, she was merely Fatima. And before she became heroic, she had to endure some of the greatest challenges of her era. It happened like this. 
While the tribal elders of the Bani Kilab were gathered for a meeting, it had come to their attention that the wives of the brothers Valim and Madlum were both expecting, and so the brothers made a pact in the interests of their people. Valim said to Madlum, he whose wife has a son will become the chief of the clan with authority over all the Arabs in our region. One of the elders turned to Madlum. Do you agree to this? Yes, Madlum replied, and if we both have sons, then we will retain our shared leadership as it now stands. The elders nodded in acknowledgement. The two men returned to their wives and informed them of the agreement. Each wife exclaimed, I have nothing to do with that. We'll get whatever the Creator grants us. <laughs> After a time, both women went into labor. Valim's wife, Esam, delivered a boy like a little chunk of the moon itself. Valim was beside himself with joy. But he turned to the midwife and asked her to go check on his brother's wife, because he did not trust his brother. The midwife replied, Surely not. How could he lie when you are brothers? Enough talk. Go to their place now. If you're there, they won't be able to hide anything, and yours is the word that I will believe. I'm relying on you. <laughs> the midwife went to Mudloom's house, but it so happened that she respected Mudloom more than Thalim. So when she entered the house, she told Mudloom why she had been sent. Then she sat, waiting. After a time, Madlum's wife, Salam, gave birth to a girl as magnificent as the full moon, with strong arms, broad shoulders, and fine features. Salam was apprehensive about her husband's reaction. Indeed, Madlum was so disappointed that he told her that if she chose, she could dispose of the girl. That way he could announce that the child was a boy and had not survived. The midwife intervened. Don't harm the little girl. If you want my opinion, let the serving women take care of her. Just provide for her, and we will raise her. Don't deprive her of smelling the air of this world. She may make you proud some day, just as Mary, daughter of Imran, was part of God's plan. As for me, I swear by the sacred city of Medina, I'll tell everybody that Madlum's wife had a boy who didn't survive, and we buried him. Valim will believe me, since I am from his household. Madlum replied, I accept your proposal. Do as you see fit. He called for a Turkish serving woman named Su'da. She had worked as a servant for many prominent households and had proven herself trustworthy. She was still nursing her infant son, Marzuk. Madlum and Salam's daughter was entrusted to her care, and she was warned to keep the newborn's identity a secret. The midwife returned to Thalem, saying, Good news! Your brother's wife had a son. But the baby died. How is that good news? Thalem asked. Because you have the only living son. No one can contest, contest, can contest your authority. Ah, yes. Well, I would have taken charge somehow. Suda <laughs> kept the secret of the newborn's identity. However, she also secretly took the newborn into her mother's tent. There, Salam would cuddle and nurse her tiny daughter. She named her Fatima. Madlum would not come near the baby and refused to see her. To him, a girl child was only a burden. When Fatima turned five, she looked old enough to pass for ten, and her beauty was surpassed only by her intelligence. When she turned six, her father grew more concerned about his daughter. He saw her as a liability, as likely as not to ruin his reputation and the status of his family. Before he could act on this concern, news arrived that the Banitai clan was on the move, uniting all their bands and, and rallying the Arabs of Yemen. The Banitai intended to attack the Banikilab in retribution for the attack that Jundaba had carried out many years earlier. Her grandfather, Thalim, great-grandfather, Thalim exclaimed, The Banitai just sentenced their own deaths. They will go down in defeat. Who do they think we are? He called for Madlum, saying, Brother, we must meet them. We'll unite our bands too, and then we'll take them on and leave the rest to God. The Banikilab met in council with their allies and then set out together. Thalim led the troops of Bani Amr and Bani Kilab, and Madlum led the Bani Wahid. They rode out to the camps of Banitai, but when they arrived, the warriors of Banitai were nowhere to be found, only children, servants, and women.
So they divided up the people and the spoils of the Bunnitai camp and returned to their own lands, driving the new herds in their wake. The warriors of Bunnitai had been absent because they had set out earlier in the direction of the Bunnikilab lands. They had chose a different route, so the two armies had bypassed each other. When the Bunnitai reached the lands of the Bunnikilab and found the camps unprotected, they too divided up the people and livestock for themselves. They formed two groups, camels and servants in the first, including Su'da and Fatima, and women and children in the second. When the two groups set out on different paths, both agreeing, then the two groups set out on different paths, both agreeing to meet up in the lands of Bunnitai. This was how the Bani Kilab and the Banitai, together with many captives, finally met in the dark of night. The two clans attacked each other, screaming, struggling, and fighting. The men clashed swords, and many wives became widows. The battle continued until morning light. Madlum and Dhalim killed many of the Banitai, felling warriors and freeing captives. In all the uproar, it gradually became clear that the Banitai had lost. The Bani Kilab returned to their own lands, bringing with them more wealth than they had ever had before. According to their custom, they divided up the spoils among the men who had distinguished themselves in battle. Fatima's mother mourned her missing daughter, but Madlum was relieved to be rid of his secret burden. The Bani Thai troop that had taken charge of the camels and servants from the Bani Kilab arrived safely in the lands of Bani Thai. Su'da had with her Marzuk and Fatima, and everyone assumed that Fatima was Su'da's daughter. The troops asked Su'da, What is your daughter's name? She does not look like you. Su'da replied, She is my daughter, but her name might be difficult for you to pronounce. Name her as you see fit. We shall name her Shariha. As you wish. From this day forward, we are in your service. Fatima had no patience for humiliation, and at this she hissed at Su'da, Stop talking like that, or by the pride of the great Arabs and the truth of the one, I'll kill myself, I'm no slave. And she tugged a veil across her face, because face veiling was not customary for servants. Even the sun could not see her face fully. I will serve no one but the Creator. Surely our people will rescue us from this misfortune and crush the Banitai. Crying, she switched to poetry. We'll teach you wolves in sheep's clothing, if they don't bring us our mounts tall and free, by the prophet, the chosen one, the best of people, a great mercy. If they don't return us to our people, gracious and proper, an act of chivalry, then they'll see what our people are made of. They'll teach them a lesson or two or three, for fate cannot dictate victory for the unjust, you see. When the Banitai heard her poetry, they said, By the pride of the Arabs, what a brave and heroic girl! Fatima and Soda were allotted to a Banitai troop leader named Ahmed ibn bin, bin Mushir, and they went to live on his land. He treated Fatima and Soda relatively well and set them the task of herding the camels and horses. Fatima kept to herself, riding the horses and learning the arts of war on her own, attack and retreat, lining up for battle, pursuit, defense, and charging. She made weapons from tree branches, leaves, and reeds. Whenever a camel stallion opposed her, she would shout at him, clinging to the stallion's mate until he surrendered. The servants were impressed by her, but Fatima focused on her inner life. By the age of seven, she could fast a full day, repeating to herself the name of God. The Banitai began to call her Shariha the Mystic. She continued to cover her face with a veil, according to the fashion of a noblewoman. As time passed, she grew more mature in appearance and speech. She rode her master's horses discreetly and carefully watched the warriors practicing in a cleared field. One day, a mighty Banitai warrior named Qarih appeared. He saw Fatima riding and attempted to seduce her. Fatima saw what he wanted, and she lost her temper, yelling, Get out of here, you most disgusting of all Arabs! She continued he continued harassing her until she insulted and cursed him, swearing and damning him. He left, but he still desired her. She fled to her master's house, crying and trembling. 
What happened? Sir Kari insulted me. Tell him to leave me alone or I will destroy him. Troubled, Ahmed set out to speak with Kari. Kari, my servant girl came to me complaining that you tried to take advantage of her. Don't do it again, or that day will be your last. If you really want her, then make it legitimate by asking for her hand in marriage. You want me to marry your servant girl? I don't think so. I'll have nothing to do with her. So Fatima's master returned home and told her about the conversation. The next day, when Fatima was out herding the animals, she felt at peace because of her master's words. Then Qarih appeared, as determined as ever. So you told on me to your master. You think I take orders from him? Where is he now? Who's going to save you from me? Don't you dare. Get away from me. She threw stones at him, and he left, saying, I'll get you. Fatima went to her master again, shaking like a palm leaf. Sir, the dirty bastard came back and threatened me again today. If you don't do something about it, I'm going to have his head. Her master thought to himself, this is getting serious. The boy is an idiot, and the girl carries herself as if she were a noblewoman. I think I should inform the clan leader. Arriving before the leader, Ahmed explained his predicament. Sir, my servant girl has brought a complaint against Qarih. I'm concerned that he will continue to harass her. Qarih was sent for, and when he arrived, the clan leader spoke to him. Qarih, what is between you and this man's servant girl? If you bother her, it will be your undoing. Marry her or cease and desist. Your Honor, I was just playing around. I was never really serious about her. Fatima was present and interjected. Your Eminence, if he threatens me after this, I will kill him. You're a clever one. If he continues to harass you, it's between you and him. Yes, sir, said Fatima, who then departed. The next day, Fatima went out to the pasture area, as usual, caring for the livestock. At midday, Qari appeared. His passion was inflamed, and he rode a fine horse as dark as night. He prided himself on his bravery and strength, so he rode straight for Fatima. When she saw that he was coming for her, she fled for the bush, which made him even more determined to possess her. His horse cantered after her until she ran out of sight of the livestock. Then he began to overtake her, and Fatima turned to confront him. Sir, what possesses you to torment me? My passion for you and your complaints to your master. Talking smoothly, she put him at ease. I never put you off out of loathing. I was only afraid that if you succeeded, then I would be in danger of losing my heart without ever having yours. If you'll be mine, then I'll be yours. Woe is me, as if a person could just separate his body from his soul and accept the pain of distance from such beauty. If that's the case, then give me your hand in marriage, said Fatima. Here's my hand, he replied. Fatima approached, her hand extended, and then pulled with all the strength of her arm. He found himself on the ground, his sword fallen out of its sheath. Quicker than lightning, she struck him with his own sword, and he crashed to the ground. The commotion alerted the herders, and they saw the horse loose. Finding the corpse, they put it on the horse and took it back to the encampment. Fatima returned to her master's house, breathless. What's wrong? Sir, I've killed Qarih. Fatima's master put his hands to his head. His whole world started to spin. You've ruined me, you bastard girl. He seized her and brought her before the clan leader. When Qarih's brothers saw his body, they demanded to know who was responsible. The servant said, The fiend of Banitai did it. At this the brothers drew their swords and went in search of Fatima's master, for it was the custom to take revenge against a slave on the slave's master. When they arrived at the Banitai encampment, they learned that Fatima's master had sought sanctuary with the clan leader. They continued to the clan leader, and there they demanded the customary retribution of Fatima's master's life to avenge their brother's death. Fatima's master pointed at her. Take her, she's the killer, so kill her to avenge his death. They refused, saying that she acted on her master's orders and her actions were his responsibility. To appease the brothers, Fatima's master had to give them all his wealth, 1,000 camels, 
twenty horses, ten coats of mail, ten swords, and ten spears. His band agreed that Fatima should be killed for his loss. They tied her up in one of the tents, and he entered, holding a whip. You've ruined me! I have nothing left! Ahmed raised his arm to strike her, but Fatima said, I will make it up to you. Ahmed's arm dropped to his side, and Fatima continued, I can bring you the wealth that you lost, if you'll give me a horse, a sword, a helmet, a coat of mail, a leather shield, and a spear. How would you do that? I'll ride the horse, wear the armor, and go bring you the wealth of the Arabs. I'm capable enough to fight anyone, even the best. By God, I'll bring you more wealth than you lost for my sake. He freed her and brought her what she requested. She donned the armor, retaining a light veil over her face. Adding a turban, she set out, with Marzouk accompanying her as her assistant. She traveled for seven days, and on the eighth day she came upon a vibrantly green land filled with herbs, flowers, and plants, as well as birds calling to one another in all their languages. Off to one side roamed great herds with their herders. There was such plentiful water that the camels alone numbered more than a thousand. The horses, sheep, and goats were not few, and the servants were living a life of ease. This wealth belonged to an Arab warrior named Dharma. He had moved to this land by himself with one thousand warriors in his service. When Fatima saw all this abundance, she rejoiced that she would be able to ransom herself. She overcame the servants and seized the livestock, driving them all before her. The servants all thought she must be a man, not to mention one of the greatest heroes of their time. One of them said to her, Only the ignorant take on more than they can handle. Do you know who these belong to? This is the property of Dharma. If you're not careful, he'll be your undoing. She struck him with her sword, and her ferocity fell into the hearts of all the herders. They drove the herds before her. Suddenly a great cry rang out behind her. She saw a warrior tearing after her, like a massive lion just freed. She knew that this was Dharma, and she came to meet his attack. He said, you're in for it now, boy. You've no idea what you've taken on. Fatima said nothing. With a cry, she stabbed him. He fell to the ground, and she left him. Meeting up with Marzouk, Fatima traveled so swiftly, it was like folding the land by length and by width. When she neared the Banitai encampment, the herd she led filled the land as far as the eye could see. The Banitai watched, wondering where all this livestock had come from, and then Fatima appeared in the distance. When Fatima's master heard the news, he rejoiced and rode out to meet her. As soon as, soon as she spied Ahmed, Fatima dismounted and dropped to the ground in front of him. Sir, for the one thousand mares that were taken from you, here are four thousand camels, both mares and stallions. There is also other livestock and equipment and people to tend them. He was impressed, and all those present began to whisper about her success. How did you acquire all this livestock? They belonged to a man called Dharma. I triumphed over him with my own strength. Ahmed praised her for her great deeds, and the news spread far and wide. Fatima became a commonplace character in conversation, and although some people continued to call her the fiend of Banitai, eventually she was referred to by the honorific Amira or princess, and the name that al-Himma or warrior. Along with her new reputation, she acquired her own tents and lands. Just like, fantastic. Fantastic, Adnan. That's hey, the well, most... it can... It's the most fun I've had on Night Rule yet. I just sat here muted eating peanuts listening to that. I mean, <laughs> first of all, like every Marvel superhero origin story can go fuck itself as far as I'm concerned. Like well, it's a, yeah. I love the, I mean, I love the style of epic storytelling in that it's so plot and story focused. You get these rich characterizations, but other than that, it's just a page turner. I mean, that was what, 15 minutes? Mm. Fantastic work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if that, if that doesn't get you excited to read the rest of it, I don't know what will. I mean, you know, it's wall-to-wall -wall fun. I mean, there's so much interesting kind of context about tribal social relations and mores, gender roles, how rating works, uh, you know, the kind of uh, the sort of politics of the household, politics of various uh, tribes. 
what will come up is a marriage issue you know well i mean i mean the whole the whole issue with like the rapist that she i'm just like i'm just praying hoping and praying she greases this guy yeah like i haven't been that satisfied since susan sarandon shoots the guy in um thelma and louise (laughs) exactly like very very much in that in that ilk and obviously like i i think it's probably let's be honest it's probably impossible for this question of marriage or or just even sexual consent is going to be a theme that recurs we are talking about a an eighth century world right so yes yes i mean the story was still going to navigate that but i mean it's it's very it's very exciting and empowering to see it kind of traverse the first hurdle of getting over that to begin with absolutely i mean and you know the setup is very interesting because the previous generations also uh, are told there are all of these kind of conflicts and politics around marriage you know when you know, they're basically unions between and alliances between two families. And when they are actually the choice of the individuals, there's possible disruption of, you know, uh, tribal calculations and so on. And so this was the case with um, her grandparents, uh, Sasa and Layla. And it's very much like a theme of another story uh, from the medieval era, more popular in Persian lands, but also known in, in uh, Arabic literature of Layla and Majnun, that is Layla and the madman. It's like star-crossed lovers, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of theme that's there as well in her background. But also the question that people may already have picked up from this is one that's repeated of identity and of unknown identity. Like it's not known that she is a member of the you know, um, Bani Kilab. She's been absorbed now into as a low-level servant slave in the, uh, you know, Bani Tai as a captive of, of war, and nobody knows that she is actually one of the chieftain's daughters. And so yeah. the story plays upon this, and also it's, you know, another layer is added that she often goes with a face covering, you know, where her face is veiled, and she's wearing, you know, armor and often she's mistaken for being uh, a man. Um, so, you know, there are multiple layers here that end up being uncovered as the tale goes on, um, as a woman warrior, as a, a member of a different tribe, how all of that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are delightful kind of, con- you know, storytelling kind of conceits, you know, mm-hmm. that keep us uh, at the very edge of- Yeah, for sure. Um, it like reminds me, it's almost Dickensian on a level in a sense, but um, that would probably belie the fact that people like Dickens were inspired by the ocean of this epic literature that was out there already. So um, to call it Dickensian would be maybe like a little silly. Although oh, I guess that mostly is. has to do with like uh, like coincidences and whatnot. But right, these family see- stories and how they're set into these wider wider networks of, mm-hmm. of the story's narrative. Um, but, you know, in general, um, I think these epics classically speaking epic is a genre right but Mm. you know these we're calling these epics these are also kind of oddly novelistic you know like the Mm -hmm. early novels are also a lot like this you know right uh and so it's this kind of hybrid you know it hasn't distilled into the modern novel but Mm. this is kind of medieval epic it's a little less like the homeric uh kind of poetic uh sort although there are it does go into it does go into verse at points yeah but exactly. it's not inverse the whole time. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good distinction. That's a good point. That is, yeah. Well, that's another great thing about it is that they're all, all of these warriors are also poets. Okay. So, mm. you know, her ancestors do the same thing at crucial moments where you want to get a sense of interiority. One of the techniques for expressing this kind of emotion and for the character to be able to kind of comment on events and tell you what they think or are feeling about it mm-hmm. is that they just immediately go into poetry. And in the most famous Arabic epic uh, like like this one, but even more famous, Sirat Antar, um, you know, a black warrior, uh, he is actually a very famous poet. And in fact, I think the epic, I would have to check this, but I think the epic story is actually built upon the fact that this was a famous poet whose corpus survived and so but whose story seemed so interesting um, as this kind of outsider figure uh, that I think the actual epic story was built around the the poetry like the poetry set definitely preceded it mm-hmm. uh, but all of these warriors are also uh, poets is a very interesting uh, kind of character that they have 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it reminds me also like in the Bhagavad Gita, the way characters speak in poetry. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting to think about a world where someone switches to verse when yeah. speaking to someone. I mean, it makes sense if you're kind of quoting something, but it, I mean, it gives it a whole a whole kind of like extra kind of interesting layer for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and just what a great what a great setup for the character, you know, like who who doesn't want to see where this thing goes with Princess Fatima. Um, we'll have to we'll have to do more readings of it. Maybe we'll do an, an, an abridged go through. I can help and chip in with the reading, mm -hmm. so you're not put upon mm -hmm. the entire time, and we can save your voice. Although you did a fantastic job, Adnan, that was really well, good. I had fun. It's a yeah. great text. I mean, there's so yeah. much drama in it, and so I it's hard not to smile to... just hearing it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was also trying to like, well, how would an Arabic, okay, we're doing it in English, but how would an uh, Arab storyteller mm. maybe have tried to liven it up like as a performance rather than just a kind of book on tape reading? Mm. Um, of course, we're doing it, uh, you know, via Zoom, it would be so much nicer if we were all together. And uh, for sure, yeah, you know, we could do a little bit of live audience interaction, you get the oohs and the ahs, we got a, a few of your reactions. Yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't help myself. Yeah, yeah well, that's <laughs> how it is. That's how yeah. that's how an actual reading of it would be is the for audience sure. would react and respond. Oh, oh no, what's going to happen to Fatima? Is she going to beat this Darda, you know, and, and there's the audience this. reacting to the audience reacting if there's a it's a whole dynamism to it. Yeah, it's super cool. It's, it makes me nostalgic for something but that I've never experienced, which is this kind of like community-based storytelling mm. that, you know, you can't even, again, you can't even really call it theater because I think it's much more intimate than theater. And right. also um, there's, I feel like there's even like less egoism. Like theater can kind of have a lot of like heft to it with pretension and you're mm -hmm. dealing with like a lofty, lofty ideas, et cetera. But like in this, like this is a much more humble kind of community grounded form of yeah. like storytelling and narrative, you know? This is like, you know, some kind of Marvel comic kind of um, serial. And, mm. you know, those are serial adventures as well. Like the comics yeah. came out, you know, monthly, there would be a new, you know, edition and there was always cliffhangers and, and so on. This is like, it's being orally performed. It's like fantastical, um heroic battle so it's like one of these films that is a, a sort of adventure film but like there was a series mm. it's 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 interesting there's there's some unique aspects but there's some ways we can imagine this is popular kind of um adventure story uh literature and it's written you know for <coughs> a um an urban audience you know, uh, in the medieval period later than the eighth century, you know, it's looking back almost with this kind of romantic nostalgia to this period of heroic battles and struggles right. is set in tribal Arabia, you know, like these. Right. So, this, so the original audience for this would have been much more urbane, much more cosmopolitan. Yeah. That's interesting. Probably. Sense, I think probably. so. Certainly yeah, that's yeah. the case with the Thousand and One Nights that is set in that kind of a context, whereas this is sort of looking at, you know, an earlier era and a kind of simpler time and, yeah. you know, purer heroes and um, I mean, I guess more... I, I, I am jumping to assume that the, the date in which this was written is somehow really simple and nailed down. I mean, it's, it's, these things are fluid, though, right? Like people, they're fluid. People, people have to fluid. write have to write their master's thesis on trying to figure out what century something was written in, right? Oh yeah. Well, the, there's it's at least we can identify the time period because there is this kind of historicist sensibility in it of setting mm. it in the Abbasid era you know, the Abbas, the transition of the revolution, that is actually referred to as a big event. Um, beyond that, however, you know, uh, scholars uh, will date the manuscript, but then of course we know it's being told in an oral form. It's not like it's yeah. composed by one person in a particular form and then other people learn about it. It's like a whole community of storytellers uh, and audiences that have their sense of who this, uh, figure is, and there may be very different versions of some parts of the story um, that never got uh, kind of preserved, that we are lost to us. Mm. Every performance was unique in some respects, but we have this, uh, you know, manuscript and, you know, that's dated to the later medieval uh, period. Mm. Yeah, we should definitely um, get on mic and, and jump into the next one. Maybe like in two weeks time might be appreciate something Sounds like good. that. Yeah, uh, could be a fun Sunday night um, 
ritual. I just, I'm, I'm looking back at reading Beowulf in university and just how bloody bored I was the entire time. Just thinking to myself, kind of <laughs> Beowulf was like half as, half as, half as much of a page turner as Princess Fatima, warrior woman. I mean, come on. I am definitely assigning it in my future, you know, in, in courses in the coming years. Uh, I will yeah. definitely use this, partly because um, there are some materials, obviously, about women. There's some good translations of uh, a text about Sufi women that was collected mm -hmm. in Nishapur and Khorasan in the 11th century by Abdurrahman Sulami, one of the important Sufi kind of collectors, scholars of that generation. Mm. So there are some, you know, and there's also, you know, one can read uh, Thousand and One Nights and gender is a very important, you know, part of that. And of course, the storyteller is a woman. And so there are ways in which you can engage the question of women's experience and, and so on. I know, I know in this terms of like fabulous. Yeah. yeah, this is this so is... much more vivid and, and, and amazing. Yeah, we got We really got to thank um, the translator, Melanie Ma Magadow, I think is how you, I'd say that last name. Magadow. So. Yeah. Fantastic work. I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll try and uh, I'll, I'm going to reach out to her and see if I can get her on at one point, because I mean, not just to get the regular interview stuff about how difficult it is to translate, but just to, to think about to hear her thoughts on mm -hmm. kind of the her, her engagement with uh, the ideas and the story and the story itself and whatnot. Um, that would be yeah. fun. I think if you need uh, a second on it, you know, let me are, know. Oh, are you kidding me? I would basically get you to you two on mic and just let you do your thing. <laughs> you don't need me. You don't need, need me getting in the way. Oh, I'm just, I'm just the enthusiast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know it's probably about, it's getting pretty late there for you over in uh, the East, the Eastern Canadian empire. So um, I'll probably, we can probably leave it there. Start the wind down procedure. Um, what else is going on? Is there anything you want to plug or tell people about? I mean, you've got weekly marks that people can sign up for at davidfeldmanshow.com. Office yeah. hours is, is still the best way to, to reach out there. Yeah, uh, you know, there's office hours on the David Feldman Show. I'm on that pretty regularly, Mondays and Thursdays, typically sometimes doing interviews, sometimes talking uh, myself about contemporary events, Middle East politics, uh, U.S. foreign policy, these kinds of things. But you can also check out The Mudgeless, which is a podcast I co-host uh, uh, based here in Queens, the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project. And we had one episode that recently, or about a month ago, that was about uh, the Afghanistan situation. I talked with my colleague, Ariel Salzman, uh, and we have one that should be coming out this next week uh, about uh, Baal spirituality and um, uh, uh, literature and um, music uh, in particular. So the question of music and religion in South Asia, particularly in Bangladesh and this particular group and their traditions of a very interesting and complicated uh, integrated form of musical spirituality uh, that um, people will, I think, find fascinating uh, with the person who's working on it for their dissertation, which they've just completed here at Queens. Yeah, that sounds and great. Also check out Guerrilla History. Of course. Uh, we have yeah, I see you're wearing the merch. Awesome. Yeah, well, we looks, don't have merch. Good. I do. It's just my wife made this as a Father's Day. Oh, okay, okay. But if we do make merch, I think these are. I'm trialing it. it, it it's, I think it's pretty, pretty nice. Uh, T-shirt. Uh, I like the design. Yeah, Gorilla History. That that comes out once a week, right? Uh, I think twice a month we have. Twice a month. Okay. So it's yeah, twice a month. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for bringing my attention to this book. I mean, I'm I'm always fascinated to try and. Um, get back in the habit of, of knowing the great literature and the great creative works out there. There's there's a lot to explore. And certainly this one is super, super cool and super, super fun to get to learn a little bit more about. And again, thank you for reading for it. We'll, we'll see if I can get in on the reading uh, once I build up the confidence. <laughs> but Absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. I'd love to hear you read and also chat more with you as we get deeper into the, into the story. Yeah. And again, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of shocked that it's just been translated now. And I think honestly, there'll be a Disney movie. Hopefully, not a Disney movie. There'll be something much cooler shortly. It definitely um, deserves wide, you know, uh, adaptation and distribution. You know, yeah. I hope people will read the work, but I think it will make a great feature film or, you know, series, um, mm -hmm. you know, on mm -hmm. Netflix or Prime or something like that. Yeah. 
yeah honestly uh we could use we could use the material i think generally speaking speaking on a species level we need better stories and this certainly fits the bill thank you so much for the time for your time thank adnan you. and always great to talk with you glad always to hear you're doing well um i'll let you know when this is out and we'll hook it up let's say in two weeks and continue from here sounds great <laughs>